welcome to season two, episode one of the historical paranormal podcast. I am so excited to be back. Um, I've been doing a lot since the last episode of season one. I've been walking into people's houses randomly. We'll go into that. I've been traveling. I was in Boca Raton in Miami. So lots of really cool things and some not so cool things. Um, the first of which I did walk into somebody's house. What happened was, is that my, I have a friend who had a child's birthday party, both of her kids, um, in Bernie, Texas, which is right outside of San Antonio. And I've been to Bernie. So I was like, okay, I know some parts of it are really rural, but yeah, nothing I can't deal with, but oh, was I wrong? So I turned the GPS on. It's about a 45 minute drive from where I'm at at that point. And finally the GPS or Google tells me to turn. I see Bernie high school and I'm like, cool. Bernie high school reminds me of my old high school of yore in a small town. And I turn, it tells me to turn down this other road. Well, there's balloons everywhere. So I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track. And then it tells me, okay, your destination is, and then I don't hear that part. I hear in my own head, your destination, or you've arrived at your destination. So I get out of the car. Now, there's not a lot of parking available where this place is. So I park on this kind of like foot drop next to a Jeep. And I'm like, okay, Jeep. Well, you know, I have an SUV too, but not quite like yours. So I get out of the car. I'm already dropping a foot as I step out of this car. And when I look around to see where I should enter the party, I see the back gates open. And again, there's balloons. So I'm like, okay, cool. This has got to be it. It is very rural, exactly what I expected it to be. So I figure, cool, this is where it's at. I hear sounds of um, water. So I'm like, even better. She said it was going to have a water feature, like one of those little water, like inflatable water slides. So I'm at the right place. Good job, me on the directions. So yeah, I see the front door and I'm like, you know what? We're friends. I know she said there's going to be like 54 people at this party, but we're friends and I don't need to walk in the front door. I'm just going to go in the back gate. I'm sure that's what she wants. So I make my way to the back gate and the little garage area is open and I see Bree, Bernie High School, whatever sport. And I'm like, okay, mental note, the little girl's name is Bree. I'll say hi to her. Um, and I, as I walk in, so I walk in and there's like five guys barbecuing and I think smoking something. It smelled amazing. And I'm like, okay, I don't know these guys and they're being kind of awkward. So they just don't know me. I mean, there's going to be 54 people at this party and I only know two of them plus the two kids. <clears throat> and even at that time, only the one kid, cause I hadn't met her son yet. So I continue on. I have the gifts in tow. So obviously like I'm trying to give some kids some stuff and I see this really adorable, huge poodle come up and I'm like, hello puppy. So I pet him for a while and I'm like, is Molly here? And the guys look at me and they're like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, we're being rude today. That's fine. Whatever. I'll just find Molly. So I make my way into the house and this super cute blonde girl steps out and I'm like, Hey, you must be Brie. Hello. And she looks at me and she's like, yeah, who are you? And at this point I realized I am not at the right place. There's no way that this is the house. So I turn around and I look at the guys. And I'm like, is this the party for Levi? 
and for L because it doesn't seem to be. And he, they were like, no, I think you have the wrong house. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'm such an idiot. I am so sorry. The party must be down the street. And I just totally missed it. So I'm so, so sorry about that. And they were like super gracious and forgiving. And they're like, yeah, there's the people who had been driving by and looked in. I was like, but none of them pet your dog and went in their, into your house. I bet. Of course they said no. So super embarrassing, entirely my fault. And it took the cake. Of course, the minute I got in my car, I finally heard Google pipe up. Now it wants to make itself more known and say your destination is like 0.2 miles down the road or whatever. So thanks Google for that. Anyway, I get to the party. I tell them all what happened. Of course, it's really funny because it's a funny story. And later on after the party, after, you know, a couple days have gone by, I hear that I am not the only one who did that. Like two more people did. And thank goodness for them because I did not want to be the only person who made that mistake. So anyway, that's my embarrassing story that happened. Um, I did just get back from Boca Raton via Miami and it was awesome. It did rain like torrential storm rain the entire time I was there, but still so incredibly beautiful. It is, however, responsible for this voice that you're hearing right now because I am just getting over. I don't know if it's like a cold or maybe like an allergic reaction to the mold and the seawater. I don't know. I did get to step into the ocean for a second. It was at night and it was pitch black. And I was like, you know, I definitely have watched a lot of true crime. I literally do a true crime podcast, even though it does focus more on historical true crime. And here I am, pitch black at night on the beach, dancing around the ocean like I'm not going to get killed right now. I was with a couple of other people, but still very scary. We also got out right before Hurricane Dorian. It still hasn't hit yet, but I think it might skip Florida, which I hope it does because, man, that's a Category 5 storm. And just to get out, the planes were completely packed and full. Um, It was insane just being in that airport. And I think because of the weather that was already bad, we had to reroute in midair. And they were like, now we're going over the Florida Keys. And I was like, it's pitch blackout. We're flying at night. I can't see the Florida Keys. Neato. I feel as though that's out of our way. So I'm a little weirded out by that. Are you going to fly us into the Bermuda Triangle? Because it doesn't do so well for planes. And now I'm really freaking out. Anyway. Obviously, I'm fine outside of this little allergic reaction slash cold situation. So that being said, let's get into our subject today. I'm really, really excited about it. And I have been excited about it for a while. And that subject is the Dybbuk box. So for those of you who do not know, because I thought I didn't know, I thought a Dybbuk was a Jewish demon. But as it turns out, um, Dybbuk comes from the Hebrew word ru, which means the act of sticking, and is a nominal form derived from the verb debak, or to adhere or cling. So the Dybbuk first appeared in 16th century texts, but remained pretty rooted in Jewish folklore until a play came out by S. Ansky titled The Dybbuk, brought it into mainstream culture. The threat of the Dybbuk would be used frequently to keep people adhered to orthodox faith and values. And to explain that, a Dybbuk is not a Jewish demon, but is actually a human soul, like a tortured human soul that's trapped and of course it cleaves if we go back to the word rue 
um, it sticks or it cleaves onto um, a human who, and here's the ways you can get one attached to you. So it cleaves onto a person who makes a sloppy mezuzah. Um, or another example is doubting Moses crossing the Red Sea. Now, for those of you who do not know what a mezuzah is, um, it is a small scroll affixed to the doorpost of Jewish homes to fulfill the mitzvah or biblical commandment to write the words of God on the gates and doorposts of your house. You'll find that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9. Now, the actual Dybbuk box that we are speaking of today is a wine box, and it was purchased with a few other items at a yard sale in 2001 by a one Kevin Manis. He was an antiques dealer and refurbisher in Portland, Oregon. He thought it might be an heirloom that the family hadn't meant to sell, but upon returning the item to the woman selling it, she flat out refused to take it. Which is like, okay, first of all, isn't that what antique dealers do? Like They grab things that are meant to be heirlooms. This guy's kind of doing a nice thing. Or at least making it sound like a really nice thing by saying, no, for sure you didn't mean to sell this. I'm going to bring it back. That's just my take on it. You'll see why later. Um, she explained to him when he tried to bring it back that the box was owned by her late grandmother, Havela, who'd owned it since she was a very young woman. Havela acquired the box in Spain after leaving Poland during the Holocaust and immigrating to the United States. Her granddaughter goes on to explain to Kevin that the box was always kept in a sewing cabinet because it had a dibbuk in it, and she and her siblings were instructed to never, ever open it. So at this point, <clears throat> just to add some color to this, at this point, Kevin is very aware that the box has a dibbuk in it, but he takes it to his shop anyway and opens it to examine the contents, which are two wheat pennies, one dated 1928, and one dated 1925. One lock of blonde hair bound with a leather cord, and a lack of darker hair also bound with a cord. A granite statue with the word Shalom on it. A four-legged candlestick holder with octopus legs. Ooh. A gold-colored goblet. A dried-up rosebud and various papers. That octopus candlestick holder sounds really, really cool, and I, I really want it, like, low-key... If anyone's selling one, I kind of want one. The back of the box, moving on. The back of the box has the Shema Yisrael on it, which is the Jewish prayer at the center of morning and evening prayers. The first line is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And for those of you right now who are saying, wait though, if she got it in Spain, why would there be wheat pennies from the 20s in the U.S.? So United States wheat pennies from the 1920s, especially if this is around the time that the Holocaust took place. And I myself had those thoughts, because um, I'm talking about them, and you're the only people that I've really talked about this with, <laughs> being that it's for this podcast. But um, I'm going to go ahead and venture some guesses, and that might be a bit of a creative reach, so you tell me. I'm going to go ahead and assume that even though the box was purchased in Spain, the Dybbuk portion of it could have been adhered or cleaved onto it in the United States. And since the wheat pennies were in circulation until about 1962, it wouldn't be terribly far-fetched to have them in the box. So, 
That's one possible explanation as to why they were in the box, even though she got the box in Spain. We don't know when she decided to do this little ritual or however you do this. Um, once Kevin, back to Kevin over here. Once Kevin examines the contents in the box and photographs it, or them, he leaves it in the basement to go run some errands. Pretty much directly after, I would say about 10 minutes after, he got a call from his frantic salesperson that someone was in the shop swearing and screaming and smashing things. So Manish returns to the shop to find the lights in the basement broken and the room filled with the stench of cat urine. The employee that called left and never came back. He was like, nah, I'm good, which I think is extremely understandable. So Kevin did not attribute this occurrence to the box at first, because why would he? He decided to clean it up and give it to his mother as a birthday gift. And the minute he gave it to her, this is a few days later, the minute he gave it to her, he ended up having to take a call. So he left the room. So he's on this call when the employee comes in. And he says that his mother is completely unresponsive. So he returned to his mom and found her sitting in a chair, totally expressionless, except for tears. She was crying and she was completely unresponsive when he tried to speak to her. So she was rushed to the hospital. And as it turned out, she had had a stroke and lost her ability to speak for a little bit. During this time, she could only speak using a spell board on which she would point to letters to spell out words. When he asked her how she was doing, she spelled out no gift. When he said he'd given her a gift, she emphasized hate gift. So let's talk about that for a second. The woman is nonverbal. She's had a stroke. Yet she knows without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, that the box is what caused her to have the stroke. And it's one of my biggest fears having a stroke because you're stuck in your own mind and that human need of self-expression is just gone. It's been taken away from you. And to have this added variable of the box or what she thinks is as a, as a possessed box, how scary that must have been to not know what's happening to you, but then think that whatever demon is in that box. And I'm using that word interchangeably because it's an easy word to go to, but whatever's in that box, knowing or thinking that that's what caused it, it must've been terrifying. So Kevin, back to Kevin, still not putting all the pieces together said, well, if she doesn't like it, then my sister sure will. She kept it for a week, the sister, and then gave it back. He then gave it to his brother's family, who kept it for three days and returned it. The brother said it smelled like jasmine flowers, and his wife said it smelled like cat urine, which I've had the unfortunate experience of smelling cat urine and the positive experience of smelling jasmine, and the two really don't share any notes. There's no way you could mistake one for the other. So then Kevin, who was like, whatevs, I don't want it, so I'm going to keep going down the line. Kevin gave it to his girlfriend who then asked him after a few days to just sell it outright for her. He sold it to a middle-aged couple, and three days later, he found the box sitting in front of his shop with a note saying, this has a bad darkness. Kevin then takes it home, thinking he can't give it to anyone else. Let's just take it home. I guess it's mine. I'm not Jewish, but cool. We'll just have it be a thing. 
So after he had it at home, he began having nightmares of his friend turning into a crazed hag who then beat him mercilessly and scratched him. When he'd wake up, he would have bruises and scratch marks on his body. As it turns out, when he asked, his brother's family, sister, and girlfriend had all had the same dream, and that's why they were so afraid to keep it in the house. The longer he kept the box, the more trouble it created. Shadow figures showed up in his home, visible not only to just him, but to his friends as well. And at this point, a very scared Kevin placed the box in a storage unit outside of his home, only to have the fire alarm tripped. No evidence of a fire was ever found, but the house reeked of cat urine right after. Now, if it were me, I'm the research type of gal, and I would have been doing the research on this box the minute somebody, or some, yeah, somebody said that there was something weird in it, like a dibbick, something at this point in 2001 I would have never heard of. Because of that, because it did take place in 2001, I'm wondering if like the internet just wasn't your first place to go, even though Google was a thing back then. Um, I'm just wondering if it wasn't the first thought that somebody would have that, oh, I'll consult the internet about this. Who knows? I mean, I was alive during that time. And I think, yeah, it wasn't the first place I would think of unless, you know, I reached my wit's end. So maybe that's what it was. Anyway, he started doing the actual research on what a Dybbuk was, and he fell asleep while looking. When he woke up, it was 4.30 in the morning, and he could feel someone breathing on his neck, and it smelled like jasmine. When he looked up, he saw a shadow figure lurking down the hall out of his room. After all this, Manus was like, okay, we're done. We're going to put it on eBay. So in June of 2003, he sold it to a University of Missouri student named Losif Nitschke for $140. After eight months, which had Nitschke experiencing insomnia, shadow figures, and complete hair loss, he put it up for auction on eBay yet again. And this was Nitschke putting it up on, or for auction on eBay. A man named Jason Haxton purchased the item for $280, which, by the way, Nitschke, good job, you made a profit. Um, anyway, he'd heard of it from one of his students and wanted to experience it firsthand. Jason Haxton has written extensively about his experiences with the Dybbuk box, including that it has had an anti-aging effect on him, which cosmetics companies, you guys, take note, get this box. Um, but he's also said... Despite the anti-aging, it's also made him cough up blood, bleed from his eyes, and given him nightmares. On top of all this, the shadow figures that haunted both Manus and Nietzsche have made their presence known. Jason has invited numerous scientists, Wiccans, Kabbalists, and paranormal types to examine the box and try to lessen or explain the evil inside. One article on exemplar.com, which I've heavily referenced for this episode, says that he's kept it in two different containers to keep it at bay. The first of which was an acacia wood arc lined with 24 karat gold. But who, who has that kind of money, by the way? 24 karat gold lining an acacia wood arc. This is not a small box. Really? Maybe it was like gold leaf, but even that would still be expensive. Anyway, the second was a military-grade shockproof container buried somewhere on his property. I mean, come on, Jason, everyone knows that the only way to keep malicious spirits at bay is inside a military-grade shockproof container. Duh. 
Jason has stated in a book that he wrote about his experiences that he would never reveal the location he buried the Dybbuk box in until after his death. But in 2016, he absolutely did tell somebody because he donated it to Zach Baggins's Museum of Haunted Objects in Las Vegas. It should be mentioned here that Jason created a replica or several replicas of the box and its contents for display purposes. So we don't really know which is on display at the museum. Zach Baggins, by the way, if you're not aware, is the host of Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures. And he's he is polarizing. I'll say that because when I first saw the show, this was way back. I want to say in 2007 when the brand uh, Affliction was a really big deal and Ed Hardy and that whole awful time. And so I always thought it was kind of a joke, but apparently he has gone like serious about proving that he is not a joke, but I mean, honestly, I I don't even know what to say, but he has that haunted museum. It's in Las Vegas. You can go see it, whatever. I think he has some objects from Lorraine and Ed Warren too, but don't quote me on that because I could be wrong. And a movie was made based on Haxton's book called The Possession. Should anyone want to check it out? When I've told a couple of people that I was covering the Dybbuk box, that's what they remember is that movie. Now, I have some issues with this story. Namely, that the box in question does not look like it would even hold a bottle of wine. So I did a little bit more research. And I ran across an article written by Kenny Biddle for the skepticalinquirer.org, which states that the Dybbuk box was actually a minibar patented in detail in 1957 by a one Robert B. Karoff. Karoff, I'm not sure how to say that. We're going to go with Karoff. Owner of the New York-based Karoff Designs, an upscale housewards company popular with upscale people in the 1950s and 60s. Biddle goes on to show evidence from Kevin Manis himself, commenting on Haunt Me, a TV show's post on Facebook promoting its Dybbuk Box-themed episode occurring at a Mexican high school. He says, and I quote, I am the original creator of the story of the Dybbuk Box, which appeared as one of my eBay posts back in 2003. The idea that Dybbuk boxes have some kind of history prior to my story, and the idea that a Dybbuk box could contain anything other than a Dybbuk, along with any deviation to the type of contents I created to be found inside of a Dybbuk box, is laughable at best. How about this? If you or anyone else can find any reference to a Dybbuk, spelling incorrect there, box anywhere in history prior to my eBay post, I'll pay you $100,000 and tattoo your name on my forehead. Emily Evans responds to the Facebook comment saying, but you totally didn't make the whole story up and are mad because other people make up more stuff? To which he responds, what's your point? Cad, make us work for it at least, Kevin. Jeez. So yeah, no, I don't believe this at all. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. And the fact that he even goes on angry that somebody else has decided to make some crap up is ridiculous. In other Dybbuk related news, Post Malone, let me say that again, Post Malone, after appearing on an episode of Ghost Adventures in June of 2018, 
where the Dybbuk box was shown to him has apparently been possessed by it. An article by TheCut.com has related that there are several things that have happened to him since coming into contact with it. Thing the first. The next month, in August, after he sees this box, he boarded a private plane, only to see the tires blow off directly after takeoff. A few days later... Armed robbers broke into a house where Malone used to live and demanded to see him, which of course he was not there because he didn't live there anymore. A few days later, a Kia T-boned his Rolls Royce in West Hollywood. He's fine, obviously. So apparently in going to the museum to see the box, you have to be over 18 and sign a waiver to even view it in a protective box. But because Post Malone is a celebrity and thus immune to plebe curses, and that's the cut.com's wording, which was great, not mine. None of this precaution was taken. So if you look this up online like I did, you'll see a lot of articles. One, reporting it, and then two, advising Post Malone on what he can do to get rid of his Dybbuk. All of this is just completely ridiculous to me. Um, if after hearing this, you're like, you know what? I would like a Dybbuk of my very own. I, in fact, would like a Dybbuk box of my very own. Well, you're in luck because you can buy your own Dybbuk box on eBay for about 50 bucks. Some of them claim to be aged and some look like they were constructed this year um, in whatever box was available at the time. I mean, some of them look like they were constructed out of cigar box, which is kind of cool if you like cigar boxes, but I don't know about the whole tortured soul inside. I really don't know. So... If somebody does buy one of these, you let me know. Take pictures because I'd like to see how stupid this thing is. But yeah, it's yet another post where I really wanted it to be undebunkable. But unfortunately, it's been debunked by the creator of the story himself. And by Kenny Biddle, obviously, and the Skeptical Requirer. So pretty soon, I'm going to do an episode on something that I can't seem to debunk. I'm really freaked out about it. And it takes place in Scotland, so we're going to go overseas for this one. And I can't wait, because it's going to be so fun. When I first heard just one of the stories that have emanated from this place, it really made me nervous. So, I'm very excited. Um, And that's really all we have. If anybody else has some input on the Dybbuk Box story, please put it out there. Put it on my Instagram, that is at historicalparanormal. Um, DM me, slip into my, no, it's slide. I have to remember what the kids say. Slide into my DMs with some of that Dybbuk information. Um, other than that, I will see you guys next week, hopefully next week, with that super scary story and many other super scary stories this season. See you next time on the Historical Paranormal Podcast. Bye!